Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is the Catholic moral theologian, Professor Daniel DeLeo. In today's show, DeLeo talks about Catholic social teaching, especially regarding climate change and Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, which calls all people to care for our common home, the earth. DeLeo also discusses Catholic perspectives on other aspects of our lives and how Creighton's Justice and Peace Studies program helps students develop and live a strong faith that does justice in the Catholic Jesuit tradition. In the Jesuit tradition, we talk about conscientization, being made aware of. It's part of you know, my vocation is to, to help students become aware of the fullness of the tradition. This is not something, again, that's new and radical. This is recovering what's always been there that in the past several years has in many ways been buried. So it's helping students encounter the fullness of faith. Professor Daniel DeLeo is a Catholic moral theologian, associate professor, and director of the Justice and Peace Studies program at Creighton University. He specializes in Catholic social teaching, climate change, and Pope Francis's ecological encyclical Laudato Si. Dr. DeLeo earned his PhD in theological ethics from Boston College and his bachelor's degree in sociology from Cornell University. Professor Daniel DeLeo, welcome to Lives. Thank you for having me. So a big question to start with, and, and it almost in some ways feels like a tautology, moral theology. I, I would have thought in some ways that you know, religion encapsulates morals, but perhaps we could set the scene a little bit and establish some context. What are we talking about when we talk about theology and what are we talking about when we talk about morals? Sure, that's a great question. It's a great distinction. Um, when we talk about theology proper, it's the study of God. Um, when we speak about morality, we're speaking about actions, dispositions, character traits um, that are understood, especially in the Christian tradition, as a response to relationship with God. And so in at least a Catholic sense, morality is always connected to spirituality. Spirituality is relationship with God. Morality is the enacted response. What does it mean to love as God loves us? And we can take it theologically. We can also talk about this more broadly in terms of spirituality as whatever someone takes to be of ultimate value in the world. And then morality is the enacted response. Um, and so as I say to students, whatever you take to be of ultimate value is gonna lead to your morality. So if, you're, if your ultimate value in life is money, power, profit, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you can have a corresponding morality. Um, in the Catholic tradition, morality is the response and to relationship with God is love. Well, that opens up a whole other <laughs> pathway to <laughs> our, our structure of morals, but we'll, we'll focus on the theological aspect. Um, so Catholic social teaching, what does that encompass? Sure. So Catholic social teaching is the body of documents written by the Pope and other bishops that is meant to be a resource for Catholics to discern what does it mean to love concretely in the world, especially when we think about specific issues and topics, when we think about economics, immigration, ecology. Um, this is not the only resource, but it's a resource um, for moral discernment, trying to answer that question, um, whom should I become and what should I do? How should I live concretely in the world? So in your bio, we referenced uh, the Pope's encyclical. And I think for many people, some of this language may feel quite opaque sure. and somewhat abstract. Yeah. So before we get into some of the content and what that means for our, our lives and how we approach living, mm -hmm. what is an encyclical? Sure, it's a great question. So an encyclical technically is a letter. Um, it's as simple and complicated as that. It's a letter. Um, originally, um, the encyclical that began Catholic social teaching was written in 1891, and it was a letter by Leo XIII that was written exclusively to other bishops. Since 1891, the audience of encyclicals of these letters by the Pope, and they're always written by the Pope, has gotten increasingly um, 
broad in terms of being written not only to other bishops, but also to other Catholics, even more broadly to other people of goodwill. Um, Francis's encyclical Laudato Si is notable because the address is all people living here on our common home. Um, so it's the, it's the broadest encyclical that's ever been written by a bishop. Um, and it really is a kind of framework for thinking about particular challenges, but then also moral exhortations about um, how we ought to live um, as individuals and uh, together in society. So they have quite historical pedigree. Obviously, the, the papacy and the structure of the Catholic Church has been around for centuries. But you mentioned a particular reference point in the 1890s for the, the first of this particular kind yep. of documentation. Yep. What is their organizational, hierarchical, and maybe regulatory force or sure. weight, as it were? Yep, absolutely. So we can answer the question in a couple of different ways. An encyclical itself, in terms of the, the level of authoritative teaching is the way we'd, we would speak about it. It's the second most authoritative teaching that the Pope can offer. Um, it's second only to what's known as a papal bull. Um, so in terms of this type of teaching document, it's, um, ex it's extremely authoritative in that regard. Within the document, there are different levels of teaching. Um, and so in the Catholic tradition, we speak about dogma, doctrine, and then prudential judgment as the kind of descending levels of church teaching. Uh, dogma is understood to be infallible, so that's protected from error by the gift of the Spirit. Um, doctrine and, and prudential judgment are still authoritative, but they are um, at least potentially erroneous, and so they admit to uh, greater degrees of conscientious uh, disagreement on the part of Catholics. So lots of levels of authority, uh, kind of most basically though, it's an authoritative document with authoritative teachings that Catholics are called um, to understand, to give the presumption of truth to, um, and to take seriously as they discern um, those questions about whom to be and how to live. This is perhaps, for me, foreshadowing what I'd like to talk about in due course in our conversation. Sure. But I'm intrigued by that level of moral weight that perhaps we might attach to the choices we make in our own lives, Absolutely. given that kind of hierarchical guidance. Absolutely. So. Other than our contemporary encyclicals, is the tradition of encyclicals that people of goodwill around the world, and certainly Catholics, would pay close adherence to, mm -hmm. to their uh, content? Yes, with the caveat that encyclicals, especially um, those before Francis, are notoriously dense. Um, they are not... Uh, the name letter is misleading. I mean, these are books typically in terms of the length and the density of them. Um, so I would say it's not the case that your average person is just going to uh, go online and, and read this start to finish. However, and this gets to the responsibility that we did the research for uh, in our paper is that it's part of the responsibility, the teaching responsibility of the bishop and priests to be able to kind of disseminate the key insights from these uh, from these texts in a way that make them accessible and, and understandable to uh, to people, you know, kind of in the pews, quote unquote, but also uh, beyond Catholics in, in broader society. So there's in the Catholic tradition, the bishop is ordained to the offices of teaching, sanctifying, and governing. And we can talk about what that means, but for our purposes here, the responsibility of teaching means just that, that, that the bishop is, is the preeminent catechist, the one who has the responsibility for teaching um, what's been offered by the Pope um, as, as a matter of authoritative Catholic doctrine. So we obviously need to talk about Laudato Si, but before we actually get into its contents, mm -hmm. It relates to climate change, of course, but that feels a bit cold in this context. It's a much more spiritual guide, mm -hmm. I think, than than the science right. and um, other aspects of climate change. So when we talk about, when you talk about climate change, what does that term embrace? Sure. For me, it's it embraces morality and ethics. And it embraces it in a way that precedes Pope Francis. Um, and I think what what's surprising for a lot of folks to hear is that Francis wasn't the first pope to talk about climate change as a moral issue. That actually began in 1990 with St. John Paul II. 
which is interesting because a lot of the people that I've encountered as dismissive of Francis hold John Paul II and Benedict in a fairly high regard and a high esteem. And so there's this kind of internal um, inconsistency to embrace John Paul and Benedict on some issues, but then discard or challenge the idea that they were as concerned about climate change as Francis. And and when Laudato Si came out, that was something that we saw in terms of the rhetoric is that Francis was doing something new. And I think that was really problematic because if it's new, it can be framed as radical. And if it's radical, it's dismissible. And so I think for me, speaking about climate change in the way that I do as a Catholic moral theologian, necessitates reference to the tradition. So this is nothing new for the Catholic tradition. Um, In his 1990 World Day of Peace message, John Paul II explicitly talks about ecological concerns as a moral issue, and he specifically talks about climate change as a crisis. Um, And in the Catholic tradition, we speak about the morality of ecology in several different ways. The first is that we're called to love God, Um, and God is present in all of God's creation. We speak about God as creator, but also as sustainer. Um, So God isn't the watchmaker who winds things up and then walks away. In the Jesuit tradition, we speak about finding God in all things. And the idea is that God is present in all of God's creation. And if we're going to love God, we need to love God's creation. There's also a recognition that creation has its own intrinsic dignity and worth. There's not an instrumental utilitarian calculation of creation. It's only worthy to the degree that it benefits us. Um, And we can speak about this or we can see this in the creation narrative where God declares all of creation to be good um, before God ever created human persons. Um, And the Catholic tradition doesn't read that um, as literal history, but the insight is that all of creation has value and worth irrespective of its human utility. And then the third reason for why the Catholic tradition speaks about this in terms of morality is because of how climate change impacts human persons, again, whom we are called to love. And in the Catholic tradition, there's a particular accent on the commitment to the poor and vulnerable because these are the communities that are disproportionately harmed by the effects of climate change. And in a kind of even more unjust twist, these are the populations that have contributed least historically to causing the problem. So essentially, you've got populations that have done least to cause the problem who are now being most impacted. Um, And so when we talk in Catholic moral theology about protecting human dignity, about protecting the common good, these are all of the commitments that are implicated by climate change. So for all those reasons, from a Catholic perspective, climate change is a significant moral issue. What does laudato see actually mean i'm assuming it's latin i don't want to make I so it's actually speak. not latin okay. so it's, it's, it's that's interesting um so most doc most papal documents have a latin title that's the translation of the first opening words of the text um, so laudato si is actually italian for praise be to you which is the opening line of saint francis of assisi's canticle to the creatures praise be you my lord um praising God for all of God's creation. Francis, in a kind of nod to his papal namesake, so St. Francis of Assisi is the patron saint of ecology, and so Francis, Pope Francis took that name as a kind of recognition um, about the need to address ecology in his papacy. So he, he took the title of the document from his namesake's kind of signature document, but did it in Italian, kind of recognizing um, Francis of Assisi coming from uh, the Umbrian region of Italy. So praise be you, my Lord, is the, the translation of the Latin Laudato Si or the the Italian Laudato Si. Did that seem unusual, perhaps, Mm -hmm. when this was first released in 2015, Mm -hmm. that Pope Francis took a different direction Mm -hmm. in the use of language? I think it was. It was significant in many ways, kind of breaking with the tradition that I think he saw as making um, Catholic teaching somewhat inaccessible. Um, And I think that kind of shift in language is reflected in the document itself. It's much more pastorally written. You know, Francis was a pastor. Um, John Paul was a philosopher. Benedict was a theologian. Francis was a pastor. Um, And so I think in his idioms, in his expressions um, throughout the document, it's much more readable and accessible than the preceding documents. And it was was interesting, um, even in the title itself, Laudato Si, C has an apostrophe after it, which is a kind of regional, 
reflection of the Umbrian dialect of Italian that Francis, St. Francis of Assisi would have spoken. So it would be uh, similar in the U.S. to, to somebody saying y'all. It's a, it's a kind of recognition that um, St. Francis of Assisi is um, the particular inspiration of, of the document. So this particular encyclical then is addressed not only to Catholics across the world, but also to all peoples. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about what is in mm -hmm. this document, and sure. I know there are multiple sections, so maybe yep. maybe we could take them sure. uh, somewhat in in turn. Sure, absolutely. He sets the scene, the spiritual theological scene, and then talks about what is the state of mm -hmm. our common home. Right. So the introduction essentially establishes the precedent, and I think that was essential in terms of grounding all of this in the tradition. Again, he dispels the notion that he's the first pope to ever speak about these topics. So he cites Benedict, John Paul, Paul VI. He, he cites uh, Patriarch Bartholomew. So he explicitly grounds this in the tradition in that opening introduction. Um, the first chapter is what's happening to our common home. Um, so he, he essentially looks around and does a survey of the current realities, which is interesting methodologically because this is an inductive approach, right? He doesn't start with kind of abstract principles on high and then deductively try and apply them. He starts from the ground up and he just looks around and he says, what's happening? This is where he catalogs all of the current ecological challenges of which climate change is of particular uh, concern. So it's it's really a shift in method because Benedict and John Paul were, um, I would say, deductive in their approaches to moral theology. You kind of start with these timeless abstractions and then try and apply them. For Francis, he's starting ground up, which is consistent with, I think, his, his broader worldview. So, so he starts off that way. And then in the second chapter, he, he shifts and talks about the gospel of creation. So he essentially says, before we move any further, I want to you know, put this in a faith-based context. So he references the Judeo-Christian tradition. He talks about readings and misreadings of scripture. Um, so he talks about how misreadings of the book of Genesis in particular have been harmful and damaging for um, for the ways that some Christians approach engaging God's creation. So it's um, so it's thinking about all of this in a uh, in a theological sense, and then the next two chapters really think about um, what are the historical roots of the ecological crisis. And so, in chapter three, he does this kind of diagnosis of what are the systems, the structures, the policies. Um, you know, obviously talking about neoliberal economic systems as kind of an engine of environmental harm. Um, and then in chapter four, which in many ways I think is the kind of refrain of the encyclical uh, integral ecology is the, the title of the chapter. And it really is this idea that everything is interconnected. Um, and we spoke earlier in our conversation about spirituality and morality. So there's this sense that you can't bifurcate um, you know, praying on Sunday with the choices that you make as a consumer Monday through Saturday. Um, so they're connected in those ways, but he also makes the connections between environmental and social issues. So he talks about how, again, climate change and environmental harm impacts human dignity, human life. So everything is interconnected. And then chapter five is lines of approach and action. So essentially in light of what we know is happening, in light of the social analysis and the diagnosis, what can we do moving forward? And here he really takes, um, a kind of two-pronged approach that's typical of, of the Catholic moral tradition. We speak about what the U.S. bishops call two feet of love and action. Um, so if love is, for Thomas Aquinas, willing and acting for the good, the question is, how do we act? And in the Catholic tradition, we speak on the one hand about charitable works. So this is direct interpersonal service. Um, this is our students encountering uh, persons experiencing homelessness at Siena Francis and serving a meal. In the context of ecology, Francis talks about those those individual actions, right? So turn off the lights, take a shorter shower, you know, kind of the, the ways to be green, quote unquote. In the Catholic tradition, charitable works are necessary, but alone insufficient because charitable works always have to be complemented by what we call social justice. And social justice is reforming systems and structures and policies that necessitate charitable works in the first place. So as our students go to Siena Francis, they're also asking, why is this person experiencing homelessness? 
right? Is it because they don't have access to healthcare, which the Catholic tradition affirms is a basic human right? And if so, is there a policy reform we might pursue as we also provide a meal for this person? In Laudato Si, Francis emphasizes the need for ecological social justice in the form of public policies um, that are gonna shift society in accord with science from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, so he talks about the policy solutions to what is happening to our common home. So that's chapter five is the charitable works and social justice. And then chapter six uh, brings it all together. And he talks about spirituality and education. If we're going to kind of cultivate an ecological conversion, um, he talks about ways that we need to educate people and that we need to, to proverbially shift minds and hearts um, if we're going to change actions. So it's a complex document. It's got lots of threads, um, but it is, it's, um, it, accessible in a way that, like I said, I don't think um, previous encyclicals are in terms of language and, and image. But it's quite exciting that it is accessible. It does speak to a large audience de deliberately, and it has a logic mm -hmm. to its structure. It does. So given that, what has been the impact? Well, it's interesting because there was a logic, there is a logic to the structure, but there was also a logic to the timing of the document itself. So it was published in June of 15. Um, and part of Francis's intention, his, his documented intention, was to shift or to impact the deliberations ahead of um, the COP, United, the UN uh, climate negotiations that were happening in December that ultimately yielded the Paris Agreement. Um, so Francis, in speaking to all people of goodwill, was trying to shift um, the landscape of political discourse in a way that could uh, produce um, I would say climate justice in terms of a concrete policy. Um, and so it was successful in that way. And there are uh, reports of kind of the, the ways that Laudato Si was present in some of the, uh, the public, but also the, the non-public conversations that ultimately produced the Paris Agreement. So it was, it was significant in that way. Um, it was significant in the way that it, it impacted ecological discourse broadly in the United States. And there, there have been um, social science studies that talked about the impact of Laudato Si beyond just the Catholic Church. So lots of people, um, both Catholic, Christian, and, and um, other religions, people who uh, don't identify with any tradition, resonated with the kind of moral analysis of climate change. And so in that way, it, it demonstrably shifted public discourse around climate change. At the same time, and this is this is really the the kind of um, tension that we continue to experience in American public life, is that um, it was met with a lot of resistance um, by um, you know by by people who fundamentally disagreed with or um, were threatened by this this moral emphasis on the need to address climate change, and so um, especially even in the Catholic Church, um, there's been a fair amount of if not resistance, then certainly kind of uh, neglect in terms of the document and its message. You have done some research around the leadership within the American Catholic Church, that leadership's interpretation of, acceptance of, application of the guidance and the lessons in Laudato Si. So what was that research and, and what did you find? Yeah, so the research, the kind of background content or context for the research is that we know in general, in the United States and actually globally, the single biggest predictor of a person's position on climate change is political identity and party affiliation. If you want to know whether someone believes climate change is real or if we should be uh, addressing it through public policies, ask what their party is. Um, demonstrably, reliably, consistently, conservatives um, and Republicans either challenge the reality of human-caused climate change or challenge the need for public policies. Progressives and Democrats recognize climate change as a reality and, and support the need to address it through, uh, through policies and regulations. So we know that writ large. Um, a year after Laudato Si was published, and so in 2016, a year later, there were researchers at Texas Tech who published a study called Cross-Pressuring Conservative Catholics. And essentially the question was, how did Republican Catholics in the United States respond to Laudato Si and how did they resolve the cognitive dissidence between what their party was saying about climate change and what the Pope was saying about climate change? And what they found in their 
research was that consistently when when pushed with this dissidence, Republicans challenged the authority of Francis and the church to be speaking about climate change rather than challenge their party's position and platform on the issue. So uh, kind of colloquially party trumped faith uh, for most Catholics in the United States. So that raised the question for us, um, was that true of bishops? Again, bishops are the ones who are the ordained leaders of dioceses in the Catholic Church. We know historically that the U.S. bishops as a group have gotten increasingly conservative, politically, ideologically, socially conservative. Um, and we can talk about reasons for that really since, um, since the 1970s and into the 80s. But so the question was, did that dynamic also hold true for bishops? And anecdotally, we knew that, you know, from speaking with Catholics across the country, that most people said, I've not heard about this from my bishop. I haven't heard about it from my priest. So our kind of working hypothesis was that bishops hadn't taken up the encyclical and specifically its teaching on climate change. So what we did to try and answer the question was we built a data set with 12,077 columns that were written by U.S. bishops in the United States in the official diocesan publication. Um, so there are 178 dioceses in the United States. Most of them have an official publication, either a, a newsletter or a newspaper. Um, and in those, the bishop typically has a column, either um, a weekly or a monthly column, in which the bishop addresses kind of whatever he would like to in terms of um, prayer or pastoral issues, moral issues. So there's um, you know freedom um, that the bishop has to address anything he wants. And so we thought, well, if, if bishops are going to be addressing climate change in Laudato Si', that would be the kind of... Um, stable, documented place they would be able to do that. And so we thought about, you know, looking at homilies or, you know, looking at social media, but we thought this is the the most consistent place where a bishop is going to be, um, you know, kind of prioritizing certain issues. And it's the place that most Catholics are going to encounter that message. It shows up, you know, this newspaper, these periodicals show up in people's mailboxes and their inboxes. And so they don't have to, you know, go and try and find it online. So we built this data set. So we, we looked at columns that were published in June of 14, so a year before Laudato Si came out in June of 15, all the way through June of 19, so a five-year period. And we reasoned that if a bishop would have said something about this, it would have you know fallen in that five-year window. So we found 12,077 columns, and of those 12,000 columns, 93 of them used the words climate change, global warming, or some iteration. So less than 1% of these columns written by bishops who are supposed to be the teachers and lead catechists in their diocese, less than 1% even mentioned climate change. And of those mentions, only 56 of them actually talked about climate change as if it was something real or happening. So some of those 93 mentions were just climate change in a list of issues that face the nation, right? So we're, we're facing immigration and capital punishment and climate change. So these weren't even substantive mentions necessarily. So only 56 of them even talked about climate change as if it's something that's real. To us as researchers, that was stunning in terms of the dereliction of duty on the part of bishops to share the church's own teaching and to make it accessible to everyday Catholics and, and people beyond the Catholic tradition. So that was our, our kind of top line finding. And there were lots of other variables and kind of sub findings we can get into, but that was the the top line one, which as I said, was, was pretty shocking. You've mentioned that in your research, there are reasons why some of the Catholic leadership in the country has moved increasingly to a more right-wing political stance and I've read in some of your research that in 2016, 47% of U.S. bishops who responded to a survey said the conservative Fox News channel was their primary source of mm -hmm. cable news. Yeah. So what is the background and sure. the reason for this increasing movement towards the right? And what have been some of the real-world consequences of that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, like anything, it's multivariate. There are lots of different different factors. Um, a few of the main ones, historically, you can, you can trace it, I think, most obviously to Roe v. Wade. Um, the decision on the part of the Supreme Court 
um, catalyzed this response by the U.S. Episcopate, so the, the Episcopate, the U.S. bishops, um, to strategically respond through a constitutional protection for incipient life and a constitutional prohibition on abortion. So that was in response to Roe v. Wade. This was the political strategy that the U.S. bishops embraced. And at the same time, and this is this is documented, so this isn't the gospel according to Dan, but this is the what the what the research indicates is that the Nixon administration saw an opportunity to tap into some of that Catholic strategy around Roe v. Wade and embraced and kind of expanded um, the platform to bring in some of those Catholics, uh, bishops and otherwise, who were interested in pursuing this strategy. So kind of right after Roe v. Wade, you had this, this in many ways, kind of strategic and calculated coalition between Nixon Republicans and U.S. bishops and, and U.S. Catholic leaders. And so you've got that dynamic there. And that certainly expanded, you know, in the years following Roe. Another dynamic was the election of Pope John Paul II in 1979, or excuse me, 78. Second Vatican Council was opened by John XXIII and closed by Paul VI, so in the late 1960s. Following the council, so the Second Vatican Council had this kind of renewed emphasis on the social mission of the church. Before the Second Vatican Council, there was this kind of militant kind of us versus them mentality that that was really uncomfortable with modernity and secularism. And the Second Vatican Council really recognized the church's role to try and advance God's kingdom understood as justice, peace, and more broadly sustainability. So Vatican II really renewed and recovered the church's social mission. Paul VI, between the end of the council in the late 60s and then up to his death, late 1970s, really this kind of decade of social action in the church was was kind of what a lot of the bishops came out of. So in the Catholic tradition, a priest uh, is made a bishop, and then the bishops are the ones who oversee formation and all of the, the pastoral things that happen in a diocese. In um, late 1970s, John Paul II is elected, and John Paul II in many ways put the brakes on the social spirit of the Second Vatican Council. John Paul II, for lots of reasons, was relatively conservative politically, socially, and theologically. That's significant for two reasons. Number one, John Paul had the third longest papacy in the history of the Catholic Church. So from the late 1970s all the way through his death in 2005, John Paul II was charting the direction of the Catholic Church among other things, through his appointing bishops. And the analogy that I use with students is just like a president appoints Supreme Court justices that share that president's vision and will outlast any president's term, the Pope appoints bishops who share his vision, but will also you know, last beyond his time as Pope. During his papacy for most of those years, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was his kind of right-hand man. So Ratzinger was prefect of what we call the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, so kind of the, the body that oversees Catholic doctrine. When John Paul died in 2005, Ratzinger was elected Benedict XVI, and he in many ways extended the relatively conservative legacy of John Paul for another several years until his resignation in 13. So all of this is to say, in the 1960s and 70s, you had this kind of renewed commitment to the social tradition of the church that all of a sudden got put on ice by John Paul II and essentially lasted until 2013. That is significant because for all of those years, you had U.S. bishops being appointed for their congruence with John Paul's vision of the church. And so it's not surprising that over those years, we can plot out a rightward shift among U.S. bishops in terms of their prioritization of personal piety um, relative to social action, their emphasis on kind of doctrinal fidelity as opposed to, you know, as Francis says, you know, having the smell of the sheep, this kind of pastoral sensitivity. So, so all of this is kind of theological and theoretical until you think about kind of the everyday implications for what this means for people's lived experience of the church. So, so Francis is elected in 13 and in many ways begins to thaw the ethic of Vatican II and begins to recover this commitment to the church's own social teaching. 
But now he's up against these kind of headwinds of conservatism in the U.S. Catholic Church. And that's in many ways kind of exposed these now fault lines for, you know, why there's there's opposition to Francis's papacy, because he's perceived as as breaking from um, the orthodoxy of John Paul II and Benedict. So lots of complicated um, dynamics at play. But in terms of um, the U.S. Catholic Church, it's in many ways is rooted in this historical reality of the papacy. So I think many people will be feeling sort of discombobulated mm-hmm. now because because we live in a world where it feels like everything is a political equation mm-hmm. and that much of our decision-making about how to live is extremely partisan. And everything you've just described makes me think that the Catholic Church is, is no different and itself has political perspectives operating within it. Mm-hmm but also some confusions as to how just a, dare I use the phrase, a, a regular Catholic, yeah. where do they turn to make sense of what their faith should be, could be, and, and how they might live it, given everything you've just described? That's that's a great question. This is, this is what we talk about with students, because all of these kind of top-level abstractions that we're talking about impact the lived experience of the church in terms of it's the bishop is the one who oversees the seminary and the seminary content and formation of priests who then go into parishes. And so, you know, when I do Catholic social teaching with my students and they say, I'm born and raised Catholic, and I've literally never heard any of this, it's not surprising, you know, because their their education is the product of, in a sense, this this kind of ideology that's been pervasive in the US Catholic Church. So so I think the response to that is education. But but the question is are are people are people able to um, encounter the fullness of faith without it being obfuscated by some of these dynamics and and it's kind of the it's kind of the adage you don't know what you don't know um, and so in in the Jesuit tradition we talk about conscientization kind of being made aware of, and I think, um, at least as a as a professor, that's part of you know my vocation is to to help students become aware of the fullness of the tradition, and I keep using that that phrase the fullness of because this is not something again that's new and radical. This is recovering what's always been there that in the past several years has in many ways been buried. So um, so it's helping students encounter the fullness of faith. So I know you're talking about students, but it does feel to me that a lot of what you teach and what you've been researching and sharing uh, in various publications has general application not only to Catholics, but to anybody um, as they consider how to live their lives. I feel as if you've been talking in some ways about how to make sense of these conflicting attitudes towards Catholicism. And so would you share a little bit more about um, the program, the Justice and Peace Studies program at Crane? Because I I feel like that's that's really where you're directing some of those sort of intellectual energies. Yeah, so the Justice and Peace Studies program at Creighton does kind of what we've been talking about in terms of exposing students to the fullness of faith and helping students understand the church's own social tradition. So um, so that's certainly um, why the Justice and Peace Studies program was was begun at Creighton in the 1990s to to make sure that students were aware of this tradition. And so so I think there's, there's a unique and special role for the program. I think more broadly, for for the experience of general Catholics, there are lots of nonprofits, um, and I'm a consultant with one of them, Catholic Climate Covenant, which is based in Washington, D.C., and it was uh, begun by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so there are nonprofits that do this kind of education work, this kind of catechetical work to help people encounter the church's own teaching. And so a lot of those organizations, you know, do work in parishes. So we've got, you know, parish green teams and we do education initiatives and things like that. So so I think that's that's important that people are aware of that. The flip side is that there are also Catholic nonprofits whose mission is, in a sense, to continue this kind of privatized sense of religion that doesn't attend to the church's social teaching. And one of the challenges is that these organizations are extraordinarily well-funded by some of the entities with documented histories of shaping American public discourse writ large. So the Charles Koch Foundation being one of them. So there are these vested interests who see, again, this kind of calculated relationship with Catholicism as a way to, you know, to advance an ideological agenda. So so there are money invested interests in resisting the church's sharing of its own teaching, at least in terms of its social teaching. So it's challenging and it's complicated for sure. 
I've really appreciated the mindful intellectual rigor that you've shared with me, but I can also feel that internal passion from you too as we sit here talking about this. And so I, I want to ask about you, like where where does all this come from? So yeah. let's start with, you know, how did faith show up in in your childhood? Yeah, so I was born and raised Catholic. The Catholic tradition's always been part of my life. I wasn't really until I got to college that. I became aware of the church's own social teaching, and it was actually in a course on environmental ethics. And so I, I went to a secular um, university at the time. I was discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, though, so um, kind of faith was acutely on my mind. And I remember sitting in this course on environmental ethics, and the professor put up uh, a slide that showed the world skewed according to poverty. So the world was you know, blown up in terms of Africa and Southeast Asia and contracted in the U.S., and then the very next image was historic responsibility for carbon emissions. And the world was flipped in terms of the wealthiest places were expanded. The US has 4% of the population were responsible for almost 25% of historic carbon pollution. And I remember sitting there going, this is a justice issue. And as a cradle Catholic, I've never heard it talked about in those terms. Um, and I just started doing some research and lo and behold, found this entire trove of uh, teaching in my own tradition. And um, for me, that was that was um, the interest and the, the passion that, that uh, kind of sparked for me as an undergraduate and that I wanted to pursue and I wanted to do it in a way that was grounded in, in the Catholic intellectual tradition. So yeah, that was my, that was my turning point. So before that pivotal cathartic moment, as it were, what was the nature of how you saw and practiced yeah. faith and, and you know it was wrapped around you in in the context within yeah. within which you did exist uh, yeah. as a catholic yeah for me i think growing up i went to catholic grade school middle school high school and i think faith and and catholic understandings of faith were essential to my family and my my growing up i don't think that there was a kind of social awareness. Um, and so I think for me, it was, in many ways, it wasn't exclusively personal. It was communal in terms of, you know, going to going to church and going to mass and being part of a community, but it, it didn't have the kind of social consciousness and awareness that I think didn't come until later. So for me, it's, it's always been part of my life, which, as I said, you know, the fullness of faith is holding it all together. I would say that the lack of social awareness is a, it's not not faith, but it's a kind of impoverished faith if it's only concerned about personal relationship with God and and kind of you know limited communal expression. So for me, it was it was certainly the anchor and the cornerstone that subsequent understandings were built on. And I think that's that's always been part of my life. What else was childhood like? I think you mentioned you're a Midwesterner, but mm -hmm. but you know what was life like before you eventually made the choice to go to college? Yeah. Life was life was good. I'm from St. Louis, uh, born and raised, and um, yeah, had a had a wonderful uh, childhood experience growing up in St. Louis. I, I played hockey growing up. That was my that was my passion. I, I moved away and uh, played junior hockey and played Division One college hockey. So hockey's been a, a part of my life, and that was that was a huge part of my my time growing up. So it was uh, yeah, but no, I had a, a wonderful experience. I went to um, yeah, Catholic grade school, a, a Catholic Benedictine middle school, and then a Jesuit high school. So wonderful childhood growing up in St. Louis. So you have this pivotal moment, you you sort of emerge through childhood, you're at college, you have this ex experience where you see inequity mm -hmm. in the world and understand that Catholic social teaching has something to say about this. So how did your journey then progress from there? For example, did you think at all about entering the priesthood and being mm -hmm. ordained yeah. um, as it seems you that that's not the path you chose i'm curious about the right. choices you made yeah so for me i was discerning um a vocation with the jesuits at the time so the jesuits are are you know one one order of priesthood in the catholic church so i was discerning um after college i moved back to st louis uh and was still discerning a vocation with the jesuits and vocation the go back to latin the word vocation comes from the latin vocare to call and in my experience growing up and we still hear this um, to this day, vocation is usually, if not exclusively exclusively associated with religious life, priesthood and, and um, vowed religious. And so I think for me, there was a sense that if I was going to be a faithful person, that that was the way that it was done, 
that anything else was a kind of non-vocation or at least kind of a fallback. And it took me a lot of time and prayer and direction to recognize um, married and family life as a vocation. Um, and so when I recognized that, in the Ignatian tradition, we talk about discernment and kind of paying attention to desires as pathways of God's invitations. And for me, my deepest desire was marriage and family. And so um, elected not to enter the Jesuits and then um, shortly after met my now wife in St. Louis. And then um, after college, I had contacted Catholic Climate Covenant, the organization that I work with, um, still work with. And so I got an internship with them, but then I also worked part-time at the Catholic Health Association, which is um, one of the partner organizations for the Covenant with offices in St. Louis. And so I, I had an internship with CHA, essentially doing sustainability work in Catholic healthcare, um, helping them recognize why it's a mission imperative, helping them understand ways that they can you know, respond to the climate crisis. And when I admit, when I eventually um, made the election not to enter the Jesuits, the question was, so kind of, now what? And um, at CHA, I was uh, under the direction of their senior ethicists, and um, two of them in particular, uh, Ron Hamill and Sister Pat Talone, kind of turned me on to the idea of going to graduate school for theology and, um, and being able to pursue my interests and passions, um, ultimately, as a, as a theologian. And so um, they directed me to Boston College, and um, so my... Uh, my now spouse and I moved out to Boston and were there for six years for uh, master's and PhD. And it's been uh, been a wonderful experience to, to have gone through all of that and be here now. We talked a little bit about some of the tensions that exist, the different pathways that different elements of the Catholic Church and Catholic hierarchy have taken. And your research has been pretty pointed, I think, in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you feel maybe a little ostracized from the mainstream Catholic Church because you're really pointing out some discordance, I think, in some of the practices and statements. Yeah, I think for me in my life, the way that I've come to understand it is as offering prophetic witness. And the tradition of the prophets going all the way back to the Hebrew Bible is to name the gap between the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. That was the vocation of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos. That was the vocation in many ways of Jesus to name the hypocrisy and the tension between the tradition um, as it is and the tradition's own ideals. And so I think for me, I've, I've become comfortable with it because of my vocational understanding of it. And and it's interesting because I, I teach uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham City Jail in, in my courses. And there's a section in there where he talks about being branded a radical. And he says, at first I was uncomfortable with that. But then he says, as I began to see the company I was in, I became more comfortable with it because those who were branded radicals included Jesus and Amos and Abraham Lincoln. And I mean, so you're, you're in good company uh, doing this work. But and I think there's there are kind of two book titles that in, in some ways kind of bookend my understanding of this work. One is uh, by the theologian Michael Himes called Doing the Truth in Love. And I think that's that's something that I've gotten more comfortable with is that I feel like this vocation to prophetic witness is doing the truth, right? And that's ultimately God is truth and it's part of faithful witness. But I think it needs to be done in a spirit of charity. And I think the other book title that kind of captures this is by one of my dissertation committee members, Prophecy Without Contempt. And I think you can do prophecy with contempt, but I think prophecy without contempt is what doing the truth in love looks like. And I think there's the kind of Midwest nice that in many ways is uncomfortable with that, that um, as Midwesterners, we tend to be passive, if not passive aggressive. And so there's a little bit of discomfort in kind of directly naming the gaps in terms of what we profess and how we're living. But I think in terms of fidelity to the tradition, I think it's it's part of the responsibility of persons of faith to be able to to name that. In some ways, you, I think, would say and acknowledge that you are on your own journey, trying to work out how to live life faithfully, uh, observant to your moral beliefs and, and your faith beliefs. But at the same time, recognizing that you're flawed, you're responsible for teaching others, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. 
And so in some ways, there's a little bit of a, a tension there between telling others how they might think about living their lives while at the same time, every day working out. How, yeah. So what am I doing today? How do I yeah. live my life? How do you reconcile those two things? Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> Proverbial. I mean, I think it's all kidding aside. I mean, we one of the things that the Catholic tradition emphasizes absolutely is the priority and inviolability of conscience. That every person has the freedom and the responsibility to inform and follow their conscience. And that goes all the way back to Thomas Aquinas, emphasized by Benedict XVI as even true in the case of conflict with religious authority. To the degree that a person is brought into conflict with their own tradition, they still have a responsibility to follow their conscience. So it's it's really about empowering persons, um, in my case students, to be able to conscientiously discern whom they wanna be and what they wanna do and to make them aware of the resources that are available to the process of conscience formation and discernment. So so in the Catholic tradition, we talk about kind of four sources of moral discernment. So scripture, tradition, and, and Catholic social teaching is in the tradition kind of quadrant. But then we also emphasize reason and experiences as pathways to truth and as important sources for moral discernment. So in my work with students, in many ways, it's, it's kind of teeing it up for them to be empowered to make conscientious decisions about whom they want to be and how they want to live. So it's exciting and it's a, it's a, uh, privilege to be able to accompany students in that process, that journey. Do you feel like you're being who you want to be and are meant to be? Yeah, I do. I feel a sense of authenticity and, and in Ignatian terms, that's what vocational discernment is. It's um, Gerard Manley Hopkins in Kingfishers, the poem Kingfishers talks about selfing and he, he makes up a word to talk about selfing, uh, becoming your most authentic self. And I feel like for me as a Catholic moral theologian, working with young people and trying to help people understand and live out the church's own teaching, especially on the topic of climate change for me is is selfing. And, and I feel um, a sense of authenticity and groundedness in the work that I'm doing. My guest today has been the Catholic moral theologian, Professor Daniel DeLeo. Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>